Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Today's guest is only the second female coach in the history of the Boston Red Sox organization. Katie Krall was hired by the Boston Red Sox in January to serve as the player development coach at AA Portland. Katie is joining us by Zoom. Katie, thanks so much for joining the pod. Thanks, Dan. Happy to be here. Yeah, I guess I'll start out just by asking, how are things going in Portland? How's the season going so far? It's been great. Definitely hectic. I think the cool thing about my role is that I'm involved in every aspect of the game, so both run creation and prevention. So sometimes I feel like it's predictably chaotic, but the players have been great, and it's really cool to be a small part of their career journey. Yeah, and I know your background is in analytics, um, kind of on the management side or front office side of things, and you were involved in the draft in the past. This is your first season in uniform on the field. Uh, what made you think that that was the the right role for you or that you'd be uh, great in that role? I saw it then as a really unique opportunity. I was with the Reds for two seasons and then um, MLB's commissioner's office in New York for a year and a half after Northwestern. Um, and then I had a brief stint at Google on their global strategy team. And I felt like when I was at Google, even though I had spoken to other teams about roles in pro scouting or analytics, for me to come back to baseball so quickly and leave big tech, it would have to be a position that I felt like was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I think from the conversations that I had at the Red Sox and the people that I met and their vision for the role and the way Hyam and Brian Abraham really saw this as a critical, really value add position, it seemed like something I couldn't turn down. How did you even become aware of the position? Did they reach out to you or, you know, like, cause I imagine you uh, thought you would be at Google for more than two months. <laughs> that was definitely the plan. I was catching up with a friend of mine, Mark Heil. We worked together in Cincinnati and I had mentioned to him that two national league teams were talking to me, but I wasn't really certain if I was ready to pivot back to baseball. And Mark said that they, they being the Red Sox were adding these roles and he felt like I'd be a really good fit. I was initially hesitant. I wasn't sure if I wanted to add talking to another team to my plate, uh, but then had probably eight or nine either one-on-one -on -one interviews or collective calls, and the people I met were just fantastic, Dan, just genuinely good human beings who happen to really love baseball, and those are the type of people that I love to surround myself with. So what is the, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the role in that it's on the field and that you're kind of pairing analytics with um but what is the, like, why would it be necessary for you to be on the field? Like, what are you doing differently that you weren't doing in Cincinnati? I think it's an, a unique position in that we're taking information that's in the front office and bringing it between the lines. So really individualizing that approach and recognizing what each player needs is probably going to be distinct. So for example, Hudson Potts um, seems to only have extra base hits this year, but what he wants to know right before a new pitcher comes in is the max fastball below because that allows him to time himself and think about, okay, the, the quickest that I'll have to catch up to is 95. The quickest that I'll have to catch up to is 98. So for him, that's all he needs. So I'm not necessarily going to speak to him or present additional information in the way I might to our left fielder, Tyler Dearden. So I think to have someone on the ground in the trenches who has that institutional knowledge, you're not necessarily going to be privy to each guy's preferences if you're just in Boston in the front office. So I'm, I'm thinking about this situation I don't know if you uh, are a fan of the NBA but the Dallas Mavericks hired a guy uh, to be kind of like a de facto general manager uh, last year and there was definitely pushback from the players because you know he'd be sitting courtside at a game and he might say hey that's too many long threes like we know analytics show us 
or long twos, I should say. We know it's better to be shooting threes or, you know, getting shots at the rim rather than taking long twos. And um, the players really kind of pushed back against it and were like, hey, you got to let us play. Like, we've got to take our our long twos just to open up the threes sometimes. And there was really a lot of blowback for the players getting a lot of that analytical information. Have you experienced any of that where people are like, hey, once we're on the field, we don't want to worry about those types of numbers? I definitely could see that being the case in baseball. And there are absolutely very successful players who don't necessarily want additional information. I think analyzing the Dallas case, maybe in comparison to what I've tried to do is have more of a complementary approach. So I'm not necessarily marginalizing the traditional baseball philosophy or trying to remove what's currently being done. I, I think I see the role as trying to add value in certain ways that maybe didn't exist previously. And I think to have the relationships that I do with the players, you know, those took time to build. I didn't walk into the first day of spring training and start pinpointing different areas where we could improve a guy's pitch mix or maybe changes that we could make to his swing. I think at the end of the day, the players' careers come first. And so recognizing that and being respectful and recognizing that you're entering their space, I think is really important and something that I'm actually quite proud of that I've done because I do think that the dynamic can play out in one of two situations, like the Dallas situation or what we thankfully have in Portland. That's good. Yeah, that's great that you've able to provide such a complimentary mix. I was looking back at some of the stories from when you were hired in January, and it really was a historic hire for the Red Sox. You know, this you've, like I said, in the entire history of the organization, you're just the second female. Uh, it is starting to trend in that way. I know the Yankees have uh, Rachel Balkovic and um, the Red Sox, obviously, with Bianca Smith. So it's a newer thing where women are starting to get on the field and in um, manager roles or coaching roles, at least. When did when did you start to imagine this for yourself? When did this become a dream for you to kind of uh, live out this this role? Oh, gosh, only really in October of 2021. This is a very new dream for me to be a coach and on the field. I had always known I wanted to work in baseball, but I assumed that the only path that existed was in a front office. Kim Ang actually hired me at MLB. So growing up as a little girl, I had her as a role model. But I never went to a game and saw a woman on the field. I never went to a game and saw a woman coach first base. So now to be that embodiment and hopefully that type of a, an ideal of what's possible to young women and little girls, that's phenomenal. Like last night at the game in Hartford, there were two young women who came up to me and said, we're women in sports. We work at ESPN. We think it's the coolest thing in the world that you're in the dugout like that. That is incredibly powerful for me. So even though, you know, we, we lost last night, we didn't have a great game. Like the fact that those two women walked away and thought, wow, maybe there's a path for me in this realm that I had never considered before. I, I see that as a win. Yeah. I could definitely see you as an inspirational figure to a lot of, you know, girls who want to follow your path and get into this. Have there been, like you read about, you know, Jackie Robinson and all kinds of um, trendsetters or even, um, you know, people who are the first to do it and they experience some blowback, whether it's, you know, for you, it might be sexism or even just uncomfortable moments where you're exposed to, you know, baseball locker room talk or something like that. Have you had moments uh, that have been uncomfortable so far uh, since you made the transition to the field? Yes, they definitely exist. And I think the tricky thing is, and if you ask any of the female coaches who are on the field now, like they've all encountered sexism. And I think the tricky line to walk 
when you read articles or see pieces on MLB Network about the progress that's been made. It's absolutely a celebratory time for women in sports, but by no means have we reached gender equality. And I don't want that to ever get lost. Like, I do think that women can make significant gains and change in this industry, but like there still is work that needs to be done where we create a culture that's very hospitable to women. It's not necessarily at that point yet. And I hope that it progresses in the future, but I think that the more women that are at the table at all rungs of the ladder, the more, you know, GMs, the more assistant GMs, the more directors of baseball operations that you have who are female, who can speak to their experiences. I think it's going to allow a forum and create an environment that is a little bit more amenable to having different types of people in the clubhouse. Right. And you, you had said when you were hired that like the goal for you would be to make sure or you know, the goal for you is down the road that there wouldn't have to be a big press conference or a big Zoom when a female uh, was put into a position like this. And I totally understand that. I mean, it's not like we're having Portland Sea Dogs coaches on every week on the podcast like we're having you because you're a trailblazer. Um, are you comfortable being the face? It's a lot. Of, it seems like it could be a lot of pressure. It's an interesting question, and it's one that I actually embrace. I, I do see my role as having those dual responsibilities of advanced scouting and pitch design and being on the field with the guys, but then also recognizing that, you know, the more people that I can talk to, the, the more that I can share my story and hopefully inspire others. You know, Bianca and I had awesome conversations about that during spring training. Like we are very cognizant of the responsibility. We see it as a responsibility, not necessarily a burden, like hopefully five, 10, 15 years from now, you know, there are women who said, well, I went to a, a Sea Dogs game or I went to a, a Florida spring training game and I saw Bianca on the field or I talked to Katie for a few minutes. Like, I think that would be such an amazing opportunity and a chance to be part of somebody else's story would mean everything to me. I think that'll definitely happen for you. Uh, when when did you fall in love with the game of baseball? Uh, was it Have you always, you know, been a huge fan? Definitely. My godfather actually was the bullpen coach, the Minnesota Twins for 32 years. And the number that I wear 43 is in his honor. He was very much old school, traditional baseball orthodoxy. Um, Ironically, he always used to say the damn spreadsheets are ruining baseball. And now I help create those damn spreadsheets. Um, But so would go to games with him. Definitely taught me like a lot of the pro scouting philosophies that I had that I use with the Reds, I think come from him in many ways, just in terms of understanding the game. So, you know, we would call each other and being a a Chicagoan, you know, I would be like, Hey, I'm watching the Cubs game tonight. And he might say like, Oh, turn on our game. You know, we're playing the White Sox. So it, I think having that type of person and he knew so much was incredibly formative in my development to see that side of the game and to respect it. And I think it allows me to operate in both more of the quantitative spaces. And then with some of our coaches who have, been raised and who have made their careers in what would be considered the traditional realm of baseball. I want to make sure we mention uh, your godfather's name. What, who is it? Uh, it's Rick Stelmazic. Oh, okay. And you said his philosophy, you know, kind of um, your, your philosophy kind of reflects, you know, growing up. What, what, how would you describe your, your philosophy in terms of team building and, um, you know, building a baseball team? Definitely. I think, When you look at a roster, it's a series of puzzle pieces, and each person brings a set of contributions to the field and and to that lineup. So when you're thinking about how those interact, they're not isolated silos. 
you have to think about, okay, you know, if we have Jackie Bradley Jr. in the outfield, how is that going to play with Bobby at first base? So I think from him, it's, he gave me that appreciation for the holistic perspective rather than if I maybe hadn't been his goddaughter, I, I might see it more from the, the analytics side of, you know, you put these people in certain places and then they'll suddenly come together. He always talked about the way that the team is formed. Everything's synergistic and everything interacts. Even though baseball is a game where you can hone in on individual performance, you can never lose sight of what the organism is going to do when it coalesces on the field. So I have two daughters myself and, um, you know, you don't want life to be easy for them. You, you know, you want them to take on the big challenges and you want them to go through um, struggles and grow from it. But it's also like you don't want to have them experience sexism if if they can avoid it. You want them to dodge a few punches here and there. How have your parents supported you uh, throughout your fulfilling your baseball dreams? They are, without a doubt, two of my biggest fans. My twin sister, Annie, is as well. I think for me, they've always put in perspective that this is your love and this is your passion. And because of that, you can overcome obstacles. You can surmount the challenges that you're confronted with. And I think to have them as my sounding board and to remind me what my larger goals are, that's been incredibly valuable. Not only do they know who I am as a person, but I think they always reminded me to believe in myself and to recognize that if I encounter someone who maybe doesn't support me or who goes out of their way to marginalize me, hopefully that's an anomaly and that's not the the larger perspective on me being in the sport. When you went to Google, were you thinking uh, that might be it for you in baseball? Were you thinking, you know, that that you might just kind of reshape your career? I really saw it, Dan, more of a pivot than anything. I knew that working for a company like Google and the way that they set out building a culture would be incredibly valuable. Um, I'm finishing up my MBA from the University of Chicago, so it felt like a really unique juncture in the sense of I could go to big tech for a little bit, work on a super high performing team on a product that I really believed in. I was focusing on Google Workspace, which I think is an amazing entity that allows people both personally and professionally to optimize and have more efficient practices with what they do. So I was super excited about it, but I did ultimately see myself coming back to sports, having that time on my resume more so as just another um, kind of like addition to my skill set that already exists. So I wouldn't always necessarily have been in baseball. I would have those experiences to draw on. What is the ultimate goal, would you say, in terms, like, if you could do any job, would you want to be a, a major league manager or what, what What would you like to do? I'd love to follow in Kim's footsteps someday and be a GM. I think it'd be really cool, too, to go back to New York and the league office and be commissioner. I think what appealed to me about being at headquarters is that you're the custodian of the game and you're tackling problems that are only being solved in one place. Whereas if you work for the Blue Jays, if you work for the Yankees, if you work for the Red Sox, everyone has the same goal. You're trying to win a ring. You've got your own version of defensive positioning models. You have your own processes for the amateur draft. Whereas in New York, if you're thinking about the CBA, if you're considering rule changes, those conversations are just happening in one place. So to be a part of that again, from a very high level, I think would be really, really exciting. The Base Path Podcast will be back after these messages. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration 
on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division 1, 2, and 3 colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. What did you play growing up? Played softball growing up. Um, my sister and I, our dad was our coach, and he would actually let me set the lineup, which I guess was my first exposure to roster construction. And then Annie and I pivoted. We played tennis and golf, um, pivoted to golf exclusively in high school because we had offers from Georgetown, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, and WashU to play in college. So that really was our focus. And I think similarly to baseball, golf is a sport where you're an individual and you're part of a team. Like there is that camaraderie, at least at the high school and collegiate level, but like you are responsible for your own performance. And I think at the end of the day, you just have to be a little bit better than the other person to win, which is the same thing in baseball, right? Like they can score 14 runs, but if you score 15, you win, you just have to be a little bit better than the other side. Um, so we ultimately ended up going to Northwestern and not playing golf because our whole family had gone to Northwestern. But I think that experience of beating part of a team and performing at a really high level, absolutely, I think I'm allowed to, I'm able to bring that into the dugout. That's good. Yeah, no, to feel like part of a team, I'm sure, is uh, a, a big perk to the job. What are some of the bigger obstacles in terms of that, that adjustment from coming kind of from the front office down to the field level? I think you are immersed in your stakeholders in a way that you're probably not in the front office in the sense of like at MLB and the Reds. I would know my meeting schedule and I would be able to work on my individual projects. Like let's say it was something for salary arbitration, or maybe I had to write up my scouting reports for my pro scouting coverage with the Fort Wayne tin caps. I was better able to structure my day. Whereas I think the minute you walk into the clubhouse, you can get pulled in different directions. Like maybe Andrew Politi wants to see the ride on his fastball from the other night. So you got to pull up his outing report and share his numbers with him, or maybe our, hitting coach wants to move the advanced meeting. And so I have to get my notes on the relievers two hours earlier than maybe I had expected. So I think from that you're you're juggling a lot of different balls, something from business school though, that I try to embody and rely on is, you know, some of the balls you're juggling are rubber, some are glass. So always catch the glass ones, but if the rubber ones bounce, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> Obviously the Red Sox are surprisingly off to a little bit of a slow start this year. Are there guys in Portland right now that you think might be able to contribute to the major league roster later this season? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think both in AAA and AA, there's like some exciting young talent um, from the AAA level, like Tristan Casas, phenomenal, like really excited for him. Great guy, incredibly diligent and thorough in his preparation. On our end, I think Bayo, who threw a, a seven inning no hitter the other night, sinker is phenomenal, can really vary his pitch mix well. Um, so that's a hitter, that's a pitcher. Um, we probably have two relievers, Frank Herman and Jacob Wallace, who I hope and expect to see big lead time someday. Not sure if it'll be in 2022, but two guys who not only have like really high VLO stuff, but they also have secondaries in Frank's cakes, um, the splitter that he's been working on this year. Wallace is a slider um, that he's always had since college at UConn and then the changeup that he's developing. So there are some exciting guys who I, I really think if I were a Red Sox fan, I would look forward to see at Fenway in the near future. I was reading that when you were in Cincinnati, uh, one of the things that you were responsible for, you know, heading into each draft, they would put, you know, all the employees names on a, I don't know if it was a dry erase board or a chalkboard or something. And you would list three players from the organization that you thought had a chance to really succeed at the big league level. Um, do you still, are you still involved in that type of stuff with the Red Sox where you'll sit down with, you know, Haim Bloom or, you know, some of the lead front office people and say, hey, here are my thoughts on how we should kind of structure the franchise moving forward? There definitely are those channels. And I think that's the cool thing that I've seen at the Red Sox is people are always willing to take your call and to welcome your advice. I think, what the Red Sox do well is there's this culture where people are treated as, um, you know, you're like, you're an employee second, a person first. And I think sometimes that can get lost because often in baseball, there can be high turnover, or maybe people assume you're only going to stay for a few years. The, the tenure for most Red Sox employees is pretty extraordinary. It's very high. Now you're, you're kind of at the same place in your career that a lot of the as a lot of the people that you're coaching right now, because you're, you're younger, you know, 24, 25 years old, uh, you're kind of just getting started. D is it easier to relate to players that way? Or do you find it more difficult in that, um, you know, you're the same age and they're like, what do you know? You know, you've, you haven't been in the game any longer than I have. I would say it's the former. I think it allows me to build trust and to have like a, a type of camaraderie with them that maybe if I were like 10, 15 years older, I wouldn't. I think that, you know, we can speak a similar language, not to say like we're always on Instagram and talking about TikTok, like, um, <laughs> like some Gen Z or millennials. But I think from everything I've experienced, it, it's just been nothing but respect. Like there, there has never been a moment where they have belittled me because of my age or my gender. I think if anything, you know, like they're, they're very proud and excited for what I've accomplished at my stage in uh, my career. You know, I've been in baseball since 2016. So I think for them, it's more so like, how can you help us and what can you bring to the table? You know, if, if they feel like that you can aid in their development and aid in their growth, they don't care if you have, you know, purple skin and three heads, like they're, they're willing to incorporate your information into their routines. That's right. Yeah. That's what we all want results. Right. Um, uh, we mentioned Bianca and Rachel. Um, was there anyone that you heard from after your hire that really surprised you? I mean, it could be somebody outside of baseball or somebody that just called to congratulate you or sent you a text or something. Were you were you surprised by anyone you heard from? Got a LinkedIn message from Ozzy Guillen, which was pretty cool because that 2005 
White Sox team was uh, awesome. Like Scotty Pesednik, Paul Canerco, <laughs> one day during spring training, one of my fellow coaches asked me to name like the whole infield and outfield for that 2005 team. And he was like blown away when I could do it. Um, but actually one of the best messages that I got, Dan, was from a total stranger. And he said, I think it's so incredible what you're doing. Like my daughter is four years old and she's going to grow up in a world where you can have a female coach with the Boston Red Sox and you can have a female vice president. Like that is so powerful and extraordinary. And, you know, I teared up when I read it and this is someone I don't even know because it, it really struck me what this hiring meant. You know, it was, it was so much bigger than baseball in that moment. It is inspiring. It's, it's, I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Um, now, when you were in college, you uh, organized, I think, I think it was when you were in college, the Cubs World Series Tour 2016. That sounds like a lot of fun. What was that experience like? Oh, my gosh, it was awesome. Yes, I was in my second year at Northwestern, and I was interning at the time for um, Culleton Strategies, which is the PR firm in Chicago that handles the media for the Ricketts family, the owners of the Cubs. And I remember... Um, after game seven, my boss sent me an email and he said, Hey, Katie, we have a meeting on Tuesday at 10 AM at Wrigley. Can you be there? And I was like, Oh, wow. That's a decent reason to miss class. <laughs> so we went and Mike Lafrano, who's still there, he's the executive vice president of community relations and government affairs. He had a ton of people in the room. It was probably like 35, 40 people, different departments, marketing, corporate sponsorship. And he said, we have no idea how we want to commemorate this. We know it's going to be a huge deal. We know we're going to get thousands of people who want to see the trophy. We're super swamped with the Cubs convention. We're going to, Dennis, who is my boss at Culleton Strategies, Dennis and Katie, can you run with this? And my boss basically gave it to me, uh, which at 19 years old was <laughs> probably a risk on his end. And, you know, I've talked to Dennis and Mike afterwards, and they said, we didn't give it to a 19-year-old. We gave it to you. And it was phenomenal. And I think it was such a tangible representation of what that championship meant in that, you know, we would take it to Iowa, we would take it to Wisconsin, we would take it to all these different places. For some people, they maybe didn't get to go to Cleveland for game seven, but like this trophy, this was the championship to them. And and it was very powerful. And you also have experience working on the Cape, um, which is obviously a huge deal around here in New England. You were an assistant GM. What What team was it with? It was with the Hyannis Harbor Hawks in 2017. Oh, okay. And so you were trying to find players, college players from all over the nation to kind of round out that roster? Yes, exactly. And my my favorite part of that summer actually is I was helping to put together the team for 2018. And so to do that, I would monitor other summer leagues to see guys who we wanted to maybe have for the subsequent season. And Matthew Barefoot from Campbell University he was the guy that I really pounded the table for and we ended up signing and in 2018 he led the league in batting average so that was super cool and probably my my first successful move as a as a front office executive on the Cape. You've mentioned a few times all of the um, young girls who love baseball who who will see you as an inspirational story and hopefully try to follow your footsteps and get in the game that way. What advice would you have for them as they, you know, as they try to go through some of the obstacles that the game puts in front of them? I would tell them to be strong, to believe in themselves. This is an industry where you have to be recklessly confident in some respects, because there will be people who will tell you that you don't belong. With that being said, that doesn't mean there's not a place for you. And, you know, it's my hope that I can be part of the change 
and that as I open the door, that it's wider for the women who are coming after me. Yeah, I definitely think you will be part of that change. Well, Katie, it's been a pleasure. It's been inspiring to talk to you, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, good luck as you finish out the rest of your career. I'll be excited to follow it. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Katie Crawl for joining us on Zoom. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, Steve Safran. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.